I'd like to welcome to the studio today Karen Brown, who's written a book called Prejudice in Harry Potter's World. Is that what it's called? Yes, that's what it's called. Prejudice in Harry Potter's World. And so who's going to publish it? Let's get that stuff out first. Um, the name of the publisher is virtualbookworm.com and it's available in ebook right now, but um, the printed book will be available from March 17th. And that's published by them as well? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. And so we, the, mainly you're on my show today because <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a disability show, but you've done one particular chapter in the book yeah. on, on disability prejudice yeah. in Harry Potter, which I must admit I thoroughly enjoyed reading. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you were a bit worried that I wasn't going to like it. Yeah, you? I'm pleasantly surprised. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I, yeah. I did enjoy it. Uh, but let's just talk generally. Why, why to start with, and then we get into the nitty gritty of uh, Harry Potter. Why, why did you want to write a book about Harry Potter? Well, I well, first of all, I'm I'm crazy about the books. I'm one of those obsessed um, fans. Love Harry Potter. Love everything that J.K. Rowling has written. And it sort of struck me the first time I read the books that um, it it had a strong political message. But because the books are so mainstream in their appeal, I think people sometimes miss that. And um, the more I read, you know, the more I felt that I needed to write about the issues because, you know, some of them concern people that I know, people that are close to me and people have come to me and said, you know, why don't you write about this? Because it's sort of similar to what you're studying. And um, it just became an obsession over about a period of five years. And I just sat down one day and said, OK, I'm going to plan this out and write the book. And I did. So. And, and you say it's got a strong political message. Is that intentional in the books and from J.K. Rowling? Or is it you giving it that? I think it's intentional on the part of J.K. Rowling. You know, she she might differ with me, but I've read interviews and I've, I've heard interviews where she's talked about um, the Harry Potter series being a prolonged argument for tolerance. It's not something that's emphasised in the media, of course. I think people prefer to talk about, you know the movies and the so-called Harry Potter hype and so on and so forth. But I, I think her her message of tolerance towards people of different racial backgrounds, people from different socioeconomic classes, um, disabled people, people who are disadvantaged in, in whatever way, I think her message of tolerance and acceptance towards these people... Um, is definitely intentional. Really? Yeah. Because I must admit, I've never read a Harry Potter book in my life. <laughs> You're not the only one. And, and person I must admit, I have across. a great desire to keep it that way. <laughs> <laughs> is there a particular reason why? They're I, big. They're big. Well, the first two are not that big. Well, they're, the third one isn't that big either. They're over 30 pages, yeah? <laughs> oh. <laughs> You're not serious, are you? <laughs> I don't like books that I can't get in paperback that are just just very small. Okay then. Uh, no, I, I and uh, and it's English. I don't like English literature. So really, do you speak any other languages? No, no, I like American literature. That's my right. Favorite. Okay, I see what you mean now. Yeah. So it, English literature I find to be very clever and kind of intellectual with very little politics. Ah, actually, which is that's why I quite like American literature. Yeah, because I think it has that, that kind of philosophy and a politics and an engagement with ideas that yeah. English literature doesn't. English literature is just often about being clever. Yeah, well, I think you'd be pleasantly surprised if you read Harry Potter. Well, though. I, but but now there's seven of them, isn't there, or something? 
there are seven, but they're, <laughs> they're very entertaining. Too many to start. Because uh, if I like them, I'd have to read all of them. Well, start by reading five them. Five years of my life gone, isn't it? I think once you start reading, it would go by a lot quicker. <laughs> but equally, that's what frightens me. My life going past me quicker. <laughs> uh, so, so you said you, you where are you studying? What are you studying? Well, I'm I'm a postgraduate student at Oxford University. I'm at Brasenose College, mm. and um, my field really is postcolonial studies. And I'm doing a. a PhD or a DPhil in Oxford terms with the Modern Languages Department. I'm writing my thesis on an author from Senegal called Ken Bugul, and she's written a series of autobiographies. And um, they're really about how sort of um, disturbed and unstable the post-colonial identity is. And it's it's, it's very complex and political. I, no, I, no, I'd hate to bore you no, with it. You can't bore me. <laughs> I don't mind boring the rest of the rigid. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, what so, do you mean by that? What do you mean? Well, what do you mean by that? That 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 lack of rigidity in the post-colonial identity. Well, you're sort of. Um, Torn between, well, in 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 Ken Bogol's case, because she's Senegalese, she's sort of torn between this European identity that has been, in her, you know, words, inflicted upon her because of colonialism, mm-hmm. and her traditional African identity. Um, you know, I, I'm not African. I'm I'm Jamaican by birth, and I've lived well too many places to mention here, uh, but. I find that I can probably deal with the sort of um, multicultural identity or um, multiple uh, cultural references perhaps better than this particular protagonist because there's no there's no need for me to be one particular thing. Whereas for her um, to be socially acceptable in her environment, um, she's sort of required to have this very stable unilateral African identity. Or when she's outside of that, you know, when she comes to Europe, she has to conform to, you know, European standards of beauty or whatever that is. Um, so th- that's what I'm writing about in, in my thesis. And what direction are you taking the thesis? Well, <laughs> that's a complicated question because <laughs> the, the thesis is still in the process of being written. Um, What's your general argument, though? My general argument is that, um, well, colonialism really... Um, tampered with African identities. Mm. That's my my main argument. Destroyed or just not uh, not destroyed, but um it made it, it made certain individuals unstable, as you know, the example of Ken Bogul demonstrates. And I, I don't know if any of your listeners, you know, has read um Le the Le Baobab Fu is the first novel that she wrote, and it translates as the Crazy Baobab, and I think it's the only one that's been translated in English. But I'd I'd really recommend that you know people go out and find this book and read it. It's it's a very beautifully written piece of literature. Um, so is it is it using yeah. a metaphor of mental illness? Partly, yes. Um, 
it's 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 using a metaphor of of mental illness sort of instigated by some sort of invasion uh at the beginning of the novel she um she has this um she's a baby and it's very um symbolically written she's sitting in 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 her uh front garden and this this uh, amber pearl is 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 just lying in the yard and she picks it up and puts it in her ear and um, there's this piercing scream because the child has pushed this this bead down in her ear and, you know, she's injured. And um, that's the first striking metaphor in the book of some sort of foreign object being um, shoved into one's head. Um, and I think that's her... Um, it's sort of a metaphor of, uh, of, of, of European education and how it sort of reshaped... Um, African identities. Well, in her case, anyway, this is her story. I'm not saying this is the case for everybody, but um, and this is a woman who was born in the 1960s. So it's obviously a, a different era from and what, what from today. Is this character in Senegal. Senegal. Yeah. Senegal. Yeah. So you speak French as well. I speak French. Yes. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been difficult reading all those books if you didn't really. Wouldn't yeah. It? <clears throat> yeah. And, and so, do you see disability in in the kind of colonial terms as well? Um, not really. I, I well, with disability, I'm more personally related to that from you know my own life um my studies you know where, where Ken Bogul is concerned that's something I, I sort of picked up in university I learned French in university and I just decided to go the post-colonial route and I thought she would be an interesting writer to write on but with disability um that affects my life more personally because my father is um he's completely blind now and um you know for a long time um he he struggled to come to terms with that um, because of perhaps his own pride, but um, because of the lack of um, lack of assistance available to him and this feeling of of, of helplessness and and hopelessness when when he was losing his eyesight. And in which country does he live? Well, he lives in the states now. He lives in America now. But um, uh, last year or the year before last, I, I went to Jamaica and took him with me to France because I, I spent a year working in France teaching um, and I took him to France with me so I could look after him. And um, it just really struck me how sort of um, disempowering it was for him to go blind. And uh, I remember trying to to say to him or, you know, trying to convince him that it wasn't the end of the world. You know, you can become self-sufficient and you can be, you know, you can live a normal life even as a blind person. But for him, because he'd, he'd been, you know, used to being this able-bodied person who could take care of himself and not depend on other people, um, you know, he, he just didn't, he didn't cope with it very well. And... Um, it sort of struck me that, uh, well, part of it is his own personal pride, but part of it also is how society looks upon people who have disabilities. And, um, well, that's that's not really where the, the, the desire to write the book about prejudice in Harry Potter started, but that's where the, my, um, my sort of, um, desire to inquire about the disability aspect of it sort of developed and um yeah so give me a definition of colonialism colonialism <laughs> <laughs> 
that you didn't expect to be asked that, did you? No, I didn't expect well, I like to be to asked that at all because it has very little to do with my Harry Potter book. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I wouldn't say that. Well, maybe it does a little bit. Um, colonialism. Um, I would say it's um, it's 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 a political structure where you have one dominant um, culture or country. Um, taking over another and dictating um, lifestyles, uh, political systems, the educational system, and so forth. So I think it's 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 it, colonialism really is about dominance. Yeah. Well, you've just given me a definition of disability. Really. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, think so? Absolutely. Explain. I think uh, colonialism. In relation to bodies, is the is 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 the kind of appropriation and domination of another body, yeah. in uh, so that it serves serves the hierarchy of the dominant body, yeah. which in relation to disability is normality, yeah. and it's that difference between normality and difference, yeah. and normality always appropriates, exploits, controls, determines, and appropriates in a way so that the difference serves. Yeah. the controlling forces of normality. Right. And that's that to me is the social model of disability. Mm. Uh, and that is what uh, I think you identify in your chapter. <laughs> so I think you can expand it actually out into a kind of colonialist kind of attitude of, of kind of normal over abnormal. Yeah. I'd, I'd never really thought about but that. That's a very interesting take on it. Um, so thank you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm a great believer in what, what we call the social model of disability. Yeah. And that's, uh, so, for example, uh, in the social model, there's no such thing as people with disabilities. Yeah. There's disabled people because they are disabled by social processes. Yeah. You know, my difference is my impairment. Yeah. And that, that kind of social model is another term for me of a kind of the colonial appropriation of the abnormal by the normal in servitude of its own own pathological desire to enhance itself. Yeah, and of course it's it's always problematic for the, the person who finds him or herself in, in, in the disadvantaged category because he doesn't have the power to to decide or determine anything. It's it's the empowered person who Absolutely. defines, determines um, describes, appropriates, as you said. Um, so yeah, definitely. <laughs> I I hadn't really I hadn't made the link between um, colonialism and disability because I sort of wanted to keep my academic work separate from mm -hmm. the Harry Potter project. But you know, um, I don't think I would have become interested in it in doing this book if I hadn't you know already been involved in that sort of you know field of inquiry dominance as i said before so yeah i'm yeah there's a definite link there <laughs> <laughs> well I, th I think and, and i think it's interesting because i think uh that's a, my problem with a lot of novels yeah uh, across the board is is the way in which disability is used to explore metaphorical uh, as a metaphor yeah. for kind of other social processes like you've just described the phd subject uh, I don't have a problem with that in itself in a way that you could a lot of disabled people would see that as, as a kind of a further colonial exploitation of difference yeah. by that an author that one any other author mm -hmm. as a metaphor 
to reinforce and, and construct their own ideas of, of a normality overall. Yeah. And that's that's a big problem with, with literature for me. Yeah. Uh, but often I think it's a problem within literature itself because if they had that additional insight of, say, the notion of disability as a colonial experience for the different in relation to the normal, it would actually give a lot of strength to 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 any literature that, yes. that uses it. Yes, definitely. I'm giving you a new chapter on your PhD. Well, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting that you mention that, though, because I think... Um, the problem with literature is that it has to be marketable in order for publishers to decide to take it on and try to sell it. I mean, I decided to go with virtualbookworm.com because um, most of the traditional publishers I, I approached, they said to me, you know, well, Harry Potter is very popular, it's very mainstream, and we don't think that people would want to read a book about prejudice. Um, and so for, for a writer to decide that they're going to um, write a book that specifically looks at disability or, you know, explores any sort of um, protagonist from a disadvantaged position, um, they, they have to think about whether or not their book would sell, I think. That, that, sounds, that makes me sound like a shark, I guess, but it's true. Um, and I think with J.K. Rowling, she she does this in a rather subtle way. It's not self-evident, which is why I wrote the book to sort of explain, you know, the metaphor that she has created. Um, she, she, she writes this story which um, sort of creates characters that are um, culturally... Uh, dominant over others you know according to the 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 post-colonial metaphor that you you just mentioned and um her message is that well these people are just the same as anyone else but because of the way society looks on them you know they have to inhabit this perpetual you know sphere of disadvantage um so i think it is important for writers to to do that perhaps in a in a less subtle way in a more overt way so that people will stop and take notice because the whole point of writing this book is that you know people haven't really taken notice of the message they've sort of gone along with the hype and got involved in other things and they obsess about you know movie stars and all of that <coughs> stuff but they don't pay attention to the message that that to me is what i was going to ask you about actually yeah. is that and it comes back to that kind of the intentional fallacy as well, whether yeah. she meant it or not, yeah. uh, and whether you're seeing it and interpreting it and pulling it out. Yeah. Most people who read it, who I know who've read it, yeah. it's just a good story. It's just and a good story. And they are oblivious yeah. of all of those kind of layers yeah. that you're, you're are highlighting. And I'm talking about fairly reasonably intelligent people. Yeah, yeah. And that makes me despair. Because even if you write something that has that kind of intent behind it, yeah, if it, it'll either be appropriated as a good story, yeah, but meaningless, or it just won't be got at all. So yeah. how how do you 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 feel this? Your book serves a purpose in bringing that out. Yes, definitely. Um, and I thought it was necessary to emphasize this message because I felt that the readership, because, you know, I go into a lot of um, Harry Potter forums and chat rooms and I'm always like, you You're know. Sad. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm absolutely pathetic. Um, but I, one thing I noticed is that people don't really talk about this stuff. When, when she came out... Um, 
a couple months ago and said that Dumbledore was gay. I don't know if you heard about yep, that. I did. Yeah. Um, you know, there was this huge uproar and then it sort of died down. You know, people went back to talking about, you know, Hermione and Ron's love affair or Harry and Ginny and how many kids they're going to have and blah, blah. Um, well, these are characters from the novels. <laughs> I'm taking your word for that. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, well, I, I wrote the book because I, I thought, you know, someone has to come out and say, well, this is really what Harry Potter is about. You know, it's about social difference. It's about tolerance. Um, it's about multiculturalism. Because I think J.K. Rowling wants to project this message. She wants to emphasize it. Um, but perhaps the people around her don't really want her to focus on that on those things because the mainstream audience would rather not they just want a good story that they can read and be entertained and you know and sort of forget about it after that and and perhaps the reason why um most people don't really see this is because they're not really affected by you know the issues that we were just discussing maybe the reason why i'm i'm obsessed enough to go and write a book like this is because i'm a post-colonial subject or because i know someone who is disabled you know Uh, but but i would say that most people who read this are women what do you mean? People who read Harry Potter? In the sense that <laughs> I know, uh, everyone I know who's read it is a woman. Really? Uh, That's interesting. They're, they're usually adults, a white, educated, middle class. Yeah. And to some extent, they even they miss the kind of feminist elements of uh, Hermione, I presume, is, yeah. is the great feminist. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, obviously, being a white yeah. middle class girl, I just want to give her a good slap and say, <laughs> shut up and get on with it. <laughs> That's very un PC. <laughs> you know, she's just annoying in my case. <laughs> I've seen one of the films, you see. That's, that's all I can say. I've seen one of the films. But I, 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 I'm. Does it does it not make you despair though that other people don't see this? It really does. It really, really does. And do you I think it no makes idea. J.K. Rowling despair if that was her intent? Um, I'm not sure. I can't speak for her. I've never met her. I'd love to. Um, I'd love to have a uh, like um a second edition of my book with an interview from her or something like that. But I know it will never happen. Um, I, I do strongly feel that um it was her intention to bring these messages forth. However, um, I, I wouldn't necessarily go as far as saying that she despairs, you know, because the, the majority of her audience doesn't she's get too it. too rich to despair, isn't it? I suppose. I don't know. I, it's, it's, it's probably not even about money. I think she, 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 she probably realises that having given Harry Potter up, um, you know, first of all, to her audience, um, her readership, and then to the movie-making business and, you know, to the, the rest of the, the, the money-making business, you know, so it's centred around Harry Potter. She's no longer um, the, the only determinant as to how Harry Potter is perceived. And, um, you know, I, I can just imagine, you know, publicists... Um, berating her for coming out and saying that Dumbledore is gay, for example. Did you know he was gay? I didn't Having know. from your book, surely you I must did. have sussed. I, I did not but know. given I... what you say about <laughs> Dumbledore here, yeah. you know, his, his fight for... What is he? He's one of the progressives. Is that yeah, right? he's one of the progressives. He, he's a progressive. Yeah. He could only be gay, really. 
No, I, I, you can't really typecast people like that. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Because it's, it's, it's more complex than that. Well, But... I think most progressives usually there's something wrong with them. Really. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> um, no, I think progressives. <laughs> it goes back to what I was saying before. It's you know, are you affected by it or are you not affected by it? And in that sense, Dumbledore, he's he, if he's gay, he's yeah. affected by it by that 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 absolute self denial throughout the whole But, life that he's lived, and that's why he can, he is a progressive because he has that understanding. He has that understanding, but I I don't necessarily think it's related to him being gay. Oh, I think. It is. <laughs> I think it is. <laughs> that look of glee on your face. Either that or he fancied the giant. One or the other. <laughs> oh dear, let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> I can just picture it. Michael Gambon and Robbie Coltrane. You know, what's oh, a wonderful combination. Oh gosh. <laughs> the love scene. <laughs> oh, I hope they don't put that in the film. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hope they do. <laughs> Um, well, with um... <laughs> so, let me ask you another question. Yeah, how, how do you, are you getting criticism, or, or a lot of people find it bizarre that you're reading fantasy as real? Yeah, and and putting real kind of out our world ideas onto that. And, and how, what's your kind of reaction to that? I'm not really reading fantasy as real. I, I wouldn't put it that way. Um, I think as a student of literature, um, <laughs> you know, it's you, you can't help but looking for metaphors, figures of speech, you know, mm. analogies, analogs. Um, I'm not saying that there are any perfect analogs in the Harry Potter um, universe, you know, that relate to our world. But, you know, there are things that you I can... I don't know. I think you've done a pretty good job in showing that. Oh, is. thank you. Well, I, I think there are things that you can compare. But, you know, saying that they're absolute... Well, the squibs and werewolves are the absolute equivalents of disabled people in our world. I think that would kind of be a, a fallacy but it, you, you can look at it as a sort of parallel um but one's not necessarily equal to the other um but i i i i i feel that literature is whether it's fantasy literature or you know some sort of um um love story or a political allegory It all comes back to what's going on in our world. I think at the end of the day, writers write what they know. They might write it in a in a well. Some writers might do it in a more subtle way than others, but I think at the end of the day, we write what we know. Um, so I I just wanted to um, discuss the things that are somewhat um, similar in our world with what's going on in Harry Potter's world. Uh, so I'm not saying that Harry Potter's universe is any, in any way real. No, no, I appreciate that. Uh, yeah. But, but, but it, is, it, is, it is kind of transcending that to, to analyse it yeah. as a real world within itself. Yeah. And that a lot of people would find that quite difficult to understand, given that they just see it as a fantasy story. Yeah. However bad that is. Well, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I do. I, I appreciate what you're saying. You're absolutely right, yes. But um, I feel that as, as, a, as a student of literature, that's my job, really, mm -hmm. to, to, to make literature make sense mm. and to make it more meaningful on a, on a universal level. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And so how... You're at Cam Oxford, yeah. Cambridge. <laughs> I was at Cambridge for one year. Were I you? Know. Yeah, I didn't know. And then you realised it was there. rubbish and you left. 
Hardly, but it no, was windy. I had to, That's I had why you to left, move on. It was windy. <laughs> it was cold. Cold and windy. Yeah. <laughs> and full of muggles. Anyway. <laughs> right. Uh, so, how long have you been at Oxford then? Um. Oh, too long. This degree has taken me ages. I started in 2003. Did you? Yeah, I went away for a year to teach in France, and then I came back uh, just recently. Yeah. And so where did you go to university? Because you said at university you learned French. I went to... I started university in Jamaica, and then I, I moved to America in 1997. Mm. And so I lived in the States for about four or five years. I, I went to university at Brigham Young. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's a Mormon school. I was going to say, wasn't he the leader of the Mormons? Yeah. Are you a Mormon? I was, up until 1998. <laughs> <laughs> Till you went to university? Right? Till I went to university there, I decided, well, this is not really for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then I, I went to Cambridge after that. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. So, uh, because I, I don't know, what, what are Mormons' views on disability? Well, I... Um, you know, I, I think uh, with most religious people... Um, they have a doctrine of compassion. Mm. Yeah, which... You've been reading again, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, which doesn't necessarily... Hold on, let me write that down. <laughs> doctrine of compassion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> this interview is going to come back to haunt me, isn't it? <laughs> so a doctrine of compassion, yeah. And yes, the, I... Uh, and the Mormons are pretty much... Yeah, they're, they're, they're good, compassionate people. They well, One thing I, I appreciate about um, Mormons is that they do live their religion. It's important to them, and they try to, um, you know, live by its, its, its precepts. Unlike all the Protestants at Oxford, you mean? Well... <laughs> That's I, the whole I, point I, of being I, a Church of England. Well, I, yeah. You don't have to believe it. Well, Or <laughs> if, even, if, even if you believe it, you don't necessarily have to live by all the rules. Yeah, you know, you can still... Pick and choose. Yeah, you can pick and choose, and you can still go to church on Sunday. Pick and yeah, exactly. Uh, or, yeah, whereas with Mormons, you are either in or you're out. You can't be sitting on the fence and you can't be not obeying the rules and paying your tithes. You it's know? so civilised to be English, isn't it? To have a religion <laughs> that they could just dip in and out of. Pick and, pick and mix. Right. Oh, don't you just love the English? Anyway. I do, actually. Do you? Yeah, that's why, why I've been living here for so long. So how long have you lived here? Since uh, 2003? Yeah, since 2001, because I, I went to Cambridge in 2001. And what were you going to do at Cambridge? Same thing. I did a masters there um, and what in, was that? in in European literature. I did French yeah, again. Yeah. <laughs> and what was your dissertation on in that one? Um, I, I wrote about Senegalese literature then because I, I, f- I felt that I had to continue to build my career in this subject. I started su- studying Senegalese literature when I was at Brigham Young and I decided to continue with it as a master's student. So I wrote my um, dissertation on another Senegalese writer called Mariama Ba. She wrote a novel called So Long a Letter, which was... Um, it's this uh, the, the whole novel is a letter from uh, the 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 character the main character Ramatulai she's writing to her friend Isa too and telling her that her husband um is dead but uh the problem with the husband is that you know they they had a lot of issues in their marriage because he decided to take a second wife after some point and it broke her heart um Isa too's husband had done the same thing but the difference with Isa too is that she left him and she went 
away to America, whereas Ramatulai decided to stay in Senegal with her husband. So um, the whole novel is about her grieving. You know, she has to go as a Muslim woman. She has to go through this whole grieving process, and um, um, and she she writes the the novel as a sort of uh, cathartic experience, really, um, to tell Isa to what she's going through and. Um, throughout the whole thing, I think she's 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 wondering whether or not she might have been better off if she had, you know, taken Isatu's decision rather than being the the perfect Muslim woman and deciding to stay and accepting the the second marriage sort of thing. So it's a very sad novel, um, but you know, it was it, it's a, it's an interesting read, uh, an interesting insight into another culture. And, and why the interest in Senegalese? writing i i don't know i i had a mentor when i was at brigham young um chantal thompson uh and i thanked her in 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 my book because um i think she determined everything i did with my life where my studies sort of went uh we went to senegal one year on a study abroad six-week study abroad and i got a chance to meet a lot of the a lot of the um, the writers, you know, people you've probably never heard of, um, Aminata Sofal and um, Boris Diop and um, lots of um, famous Senegalese writers. And I just sort of became obsessed with the literature from then. So I, I'm an obsessive person where literature is concerned. I read something and then I think about it for years, <laughs> obviously. Um. <laughs> so, so I'm interested in... in why 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 should you combat prejudice why shouldn't because in the notion of tolerance that yeah. we're all fighting for yeah. that we're all going towards and and your 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 kind of saying is the right thing in your book yeah. which i agree with yeah but how about when you, when in a way to fight for tolerance you have to tolerate prejudice um, and it's... so are you saying uh, are any of us saying mm -hmm. Is, is there a right and a wrong? And do we have to come down on a categorical rightness and wrongness? It's interesting that you say that because um, one thing I noticed after living in Senegal is that um, th there isn't... Uh, it's a mostly Muslim country, um, but it also has a Catholic element. Like um, their most famous president, Songor, he was Catholic. Um, and I was amazed at how how the two religions sort of integrated in this country. There was it's not like Nigeria where you have the Muslims and the Christians continuously, you know, at war with each other, mm -hmm. and um, it just didn't matter what your faith was. And I think the whole notion of of prejudice and you know people being tolerant towards each other, it. Um, it, it it extends from religion to uh, race, disability, what whatever category you know society decides to put people in. You can put people in a category, but at the same time, you have to accept them for what they are. Um, a couple months ago, well, last year, you know, everyone was. Um, up in arms because um, the Oxford Union decided to invite the leader of the BNP to come and speak, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and as you said, in, in a society of tolerance, you also have to tolerate prejudices. People have a right to their opinions, you know. So he can come and say, well, so-and-so-and-so should not, should not be here or... Um, 
you know, this is not right and and so on and so forth. And he has a right to his opinions as long as his his opinions don't um, inflict upon the rights and liberties of other people um, directly. Uh, then, you know, at the end of the day, he can talk. He can say what he wants to say. But surely all of our opinions affect the rights and liberty of others. And we just want our rights and liberties to be the ones that are standard and not theirs. Well, you you bring up an interesting point where you say standard. Um, Opinions at the end of the day um, help to create these standards. Uh, So I think what we have to do is is have a system where um, the standards are not um, solely dependent on the opinions of the majority. Uh, and I think that's that's the problem right now, mm-hmm. um, where um, it's, it's the mainstream or the dominant ideas or ideologies that determine how society progresses how we live what our values are Mm. and you know that's where the um that's that's where you have dominance coming into effect because you know disadvantaged groups are just outnumbered basically Mm. yeah and and so you you lived in senegal have you been back there since your study trip no 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 i haven't i haven't been back there since since then yeah and so explain to me why you like Harry Potter? Uh, I just like Harry Potter because I think it's a good story. I like I like Harry Potter for the same reason that most people like Harry Potter. Um, it's 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 a good story. It's it's um, it's well written. It's entertaining. It sort of draws you in, mm. and um, and on top of that, there is a message. So. Those are the reasons why I so like. So you like a book with a message. I like a book with a message, but I also like a book that I can sit down and read and <clears throat> and you know enjoy. Yeah. So I was very interested in actually the last, almost the last sentence of your chapter. Yeah. Uh, and it says, and so once again we see that ignorance of the social other not only increases unjustified fear, thus fueling prejudice and discrimination, but can also have significant psychological effects on marginalised individuals and groups and can be extremely detrimental to the wider society in the long run. Yes. Um, that sort of... I only sent you the disability chapter um, when we talked before, and this, this conclusion here is sort of making reference mm-hmm. to the previous chapter where I talked about um, um, elf slavery and a few other things. That, um, but my, up, uh, yeah. what I was going to say is, is my fear. I, I understand, and I agree with you that uh, ignorance of the other, i.e., yeah. so ignorance of disabled people, yeah. ignorance of issues of race and yeah. gender and sexuality, religion, Re- yeah, religion, yeah, and yeah. all of those other little things we could say yeah. does does breed ignorance. But I, but I, I think equally problematic is uh, an ignorance <coughs> by the other of the mainstream. Yes. And You're I absolutely think, right. And I think that's just as important. And I think it's also about a, a realistic... So, for example, I think that it's very interesting that uh, 
like the progressive idea. Yeah. Tell us what the progressive is. Well, uh, before I, I explain what the progressive idea is, um, we, we should talk about um, why there is a progressive category in the first place. Okay. Um, when I wrote this chapter, I was looking, I was doing some reading, and I found um, an article by this woman, uh, this woman called um, Jane Sancho, and she was writing about portrayals of. Um, the portrayal of disability in the British media. Mm-hmm. And she um, she established these, uh, it was about five or six categories. Of seven. Seven categories, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know my chapter better than I do. Children, followers, instasis, issue-driven, transformers, progressives and traditionalists. Here we go. Yeah, I found it. Yeah, so... Um, Yes, Which so I all thought were very good and very accurate. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Um, so, so, and this is not my research. This is her research. I just sort of used it to compare um, the 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 Harry Potter um, uh, theme to elements of disability in our own world. So, um, the progressives were the they're the category that's probably most favorable towards the disabled. Um, apart from the Transformers. The Transformers are, are usually disabled people who want to set a good example to society and want to be perceived as, you know, um, normal people, part of the mainstream, um, and not necessarily as disadvantaged. Um, but the progressives are usually members of the, of, the, of the mainstream, not always, but usually members of the mainstream, who have um, a positive attitude towards the disabled mm-hmm. instead of um, regarding them as um, a liability or regarding them as disadvantaged. They see them as, you know, just any other normal member of society and they facilitate their disability rather than using it to, um, I don't know, to to marginalize them or using it as a justified reason for them to be marginalized. Um, so... That's what the progressives usually are about. Well, if we just talk about let's yeah. let's go back to the transformers actually, because I yeah. think I think they're the most interesting, and and I think you talk about role models. Yes, is that right? Yes, the <coughs> transformers are usually role models. Yeah, <coughs> and I, I I have a I have a problem, kind of ideologically. Yeah, with role models that comes back in ways to your PhD. Really, <laughs> in that uh, that that I think often what society considers to be role models Mm -hmm. are those people with a kind of torn identity yes they're kind of tokens aren't they they are tokens Uh, but equally often what they reinforce are the values that are at the core of their oppression yes for example in disabled people it's kind of normalization so a a lot of disabled a lot of politicized disabled people yeah hate paralympians Really? Because all they do is reinforce the notion of normal. They're kind of ultra-normal yeah. versions of disabled people. Yeah. And so many people think they, they betray the whole notion of being disabled. And you get that in, in, in race uh, and sexuality and gender as well. Yes. And so, and, and I think that's very interesting, uh, just as a little side point. And I think that links back to that kind of colonial idea. And that's why... It's to me. It's very important to think about how the normal use the abnormal mm. as role models right. in what they are role modelling, yeah. and often what they're role modelling 
with people such as Paralympians, mm -hmm. or even if you talk in relation to say black studies, the the, the successful middle class black person, yeah. Yeah. often what they're actually role modelling is a parody of white success or normal success, mm. and, and as such, I think they can potentially be as even more dangerous than any other kind of one of those seven categories. Yes. Which, are, um, which I, I think is very interesting. It's, it's interesting, but I, I think it, it also comes down to the individual's perception of himself and society's perception of the marginalized group. Because for the Transformers in, in my study, I sort of use the character Remus Lupin as an example of a of a Transformer when he was a child. You know, he sort of... Um, he, he wanted to set a good example of, of a werewolf living amongst, you know, quote-unquote normal wizards. Because, he, you know, he, he transforms at the full moon, whereas other wizards don't. Um... And he's hated by other werewolves, like this uh, this other this minor character called Greyback, who I, whom I mentioned in the chapter, who despises people like Lupin because it's like they they integrate into wizard society. It's what you like what you were saying about Paralympians being um, well, they've become yeah. a parody of, of of wizardry. Yeah, sort they? of, the sort of, and yes. they betrayed their own social group. I don't think it's a it's an intention on their part to betray their social group, though. But wh why should it be perceived as a betrayal if they want to <coughs> if they want to compete on that level, and they want to enjoy privileges that are normally enjoyed by able-bodied people, privileges that are usually withheld from disabled people. Why should they not be allowed that opportunity without being stigmatized by their own? Well, you know? I, I, I would say the argument would be is that... <coughs> I'll cut this cough out. <coughs> I presume the argument would be is that they're not actually validating who they are. They are reinforcing the values... Of the mainstream. Of the, of, of the mainstream. Or the dominant group. Or the yeah. dominant group, yeah. or wizardry in, in this case, if that's what it's called. And, and that they're not actually... And what they should be fighting for is to validate as intrinsically equal in itself yes. the werewolf, uh, the different, mm -hmm. uh, the other. And that they're not actually doing that. And by participating and striving for what they have, mm -hmm. the normal have, yeah. they actually undermine equality for everybody else. What would they have to do in order to... Um, validate this authentic disabled identity that you're talking about. I'm talking about Paralympians. They would because have you brought up that example. Well, I, I'd say what they would have to do is legitimate difference rather than the values of difference and not the values of sameness, mm. which is what they're doing by being. Par I, I don't personally have any problem with Paralympians. <laughs> I must point that out. Okay, but and, and that's why. And I, to me, what's very interesting is it's never about the individual. Uh, and and to some extent, kind of, it's more about ideologic ideology, and social use. So, for example, using the Paralympian example, yeah, society loves Paralympians because it benefits the ideology of the mainstream. Yes, and it gives that a lot of coverage, a lot of equality. So it's about how society yes. manipulates and exploits those 
Transformers. Yes. And it, it doesn't do the same for those who are unable or unwilling or incapable of passing themselves off as normal. Yeah. And that's what the argument would be, such as the Paralympians, they should be saying, don't focus on us. Right. Because I'm doing this for personal achievement. Right. You should be focusing, focusing on, on them. Focusing on, on the others, to, yes. To create equality for them. Right. Because, in fact, they need it more than I do because I can pass myself off as normal, yeah. either intellectually, physically, yeah. uh, you know, speed or whatever, or capabilities. Yeah. Do you get what I mean? I, I see what you're saying because um, one of the... The, the typical responses to disability, I think, is, is pity, mm-hmm. um, which in the disabled person <clears throat> usually translates as, as self-pity, I think, um, sometimes. And um, so when you hear a, a, an able-bodied person saying, oh, the Paralympian is so brave and we're so proud of him, it's kind of patronizing, isn't it? Um, but I, I don't think we should necessarily blame the... The, the, the Paralympian for this Absolutely. aspect of That's society. Why I always it's, go, it's not about the individual. No, it's not about the individual. Because we all do what we do yes, for our own for, sense For of ourselves, self. yeah. Absolutely. And, and if they want to, if this is, if, if, if this sort of achievement is what um, motivates and drives them, then by all means, you know, they should be allowed that opportunity without being um, disparaged, whether by the mainstream or by their own group. Um, and I think the, the, the problem really is that the dominant group does not realize the ways in which it is prejudiced against the disabled group. They, they, don't, they don't recognize pity as prejudice, for example. I agree, I yeah. agree. But I would add that equally, the, the transforming role model is often in the same kind of delusion or illusion mm-hmm. about the mainstream as the mainstream is about them. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they fail to understand how they're being exploited to marginalise. So, for example, often what you will hear is that, you know, a Paralympian, they're different. They're not like other disabled people. The reality is they are. They're disabled. Yeah. In that they have a pathological difference that results in social consequences. Yes. The colonialisation of them. Yeah. And just because you're colonialised in a good way, yeah. you're still being colonialised. You're still being controlled. You're still Absolutely. being dominated. And, yes. and in a way, that's a good way of, of actually bringing it back. Mm. Just because you're being colonialised in a good way, mm-hmm. is that any better? And no. it is for the individual because, you know, they, they, they have the rewards. Yes. You know, like when the British run India. There was the ruling class of Indians. Yes. They were just as colonialised as the rest of it. Yes, of course. And they were sort of... They were the stand-in tokens, I suppose, of, you know, um, Indians who could achieve the same... And I'm being unfair on Paralympians, because I think you can say the same about... Often you do. Well, Barack Obama, in a way, is being... I was just going to bring that up. (laughs) is, Is an example of that. Yeah, and it's it's curious because um, I I have a sister who lives in in America. She's the one taking care of my father right now, and um, she 
she's amazed because she says most of the people in the states who um, should be, well, in her opinion, should be supporting Obama, you know, the, the majority of the black population, they actually resent him. And they're the ones saying, oh, a black man could never run America, that sort of thing, <laughs> you know. Um, but then the second line is, is even if Barack Obama wins, a black man won't run America. Really, in you've, sense, you've, you've in heard that one. In the sense word. that you know, he re- will be really, controlled. He's yeah. just he's just a white black man. Well, uh, <laughs> that's see, harsh. It's harsh. It it, it really but is in, harsh. But in the kind of yeah. talk about disability and, yeah. and and it's true of sexuality and gender. I I always use the example in say sexuality. Yeah. Uh, there's we have like Julian Clary. Have you heard of Julian Clary? He's a very camp, outward gay guy. You know. I've heard of him. And then you've got yeah. like. Uh, Peter Mandelson, the politician, straight suited guy. You mm-hmm. know, the person who's achieved has allowed Peter Mandelson to succeed as a gay person was Julian Clary. Yes, Peter but, Mandelson, the nice straight guy politician, yeah. that's gay, yeah. didn't achieve equality for Julian Clary. Do you get yeah. what I mean? I see what you're saying, but it's and it, it all comes back to you know the power of the dominant group because usually it's it's someone with power or someone who is part of the mainstream that helps to empower the disabled person or the marginalized whether you know whether it's disabled or race or whatever um if you take um the Barack Obama example you know um the people who are funding him are not blacks and they're not you know african americans they're whites you know very wealthy white people and um he sort of needs the endorsement of the majority the mainstream in order to empower himself as a legitimate candidate you know so um to go back to the whole idea of progressives they they do play a, an important role, but I understand what you're saying in the, in the, the sense that they 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 can also um, create further problems for marginalized groups by um, you know whether it's pitying them or uh, creating a sort of um, standardized image that the mainstream wants to run away with instead of um, accepting the social difference of the marginalised group or Because often, often what they accept is just a slightly lesser version of themselves. Of themselves, yeah. yeah. Rather yeah. than what they're actually saying. Because it, and that's okay for those of us that can be slightly lesser versions of them. You know, you can get the degrees, go to university, get the jobs. Yeah. But then most, lots of us cannot yeah. do that. And what we end up being is even f- more marginalised to the extent, and I think this is where I, I, I think about kind of the ignorance on, on the part of, often of progressives and, and transformers, yeah. is, is, is a denial, the way they often achieve their success is to deny the deeper truth of a situation. Yes. So, f- so for example, I see contemporary society, Western cultural society, as on on a road of of the extermination of disabled people, there yeah. is there is virtually a holocaust against disabled people. You would go as far as as comparing it with a holocaust. For example, if you think, and again, it's not about whether you're for or against it, but if you yeah. think about the notion of abortion in relation to disabled people, yeah. Since the war, you're probably talking about twenty million 
exterminations of disabled people on the basis of them being disabled. There's no other word for it in my vocabulary. Certainly. Holocaust. Uh, but again, you, that's a very difficult thing to talk about. It. You say, I'll say, well, it's not like that. Well, it is. That is the reality. Certain, and again, with, with the development of genetics and all that kind of thing, that, that kind of, the numbers will increase, the groups who will be included in that extermination will increase. Mm. If you take my impairment, for example, which is spina bifida, if you take Down syndrome as well, learning mm. difficulty, yeah. you're talking about an almost 99% extermination rate termination rate depending on your, your your point of view yeah and that's often that's not about whether you're for or against abortion that's based purely on the basis of difference that those decisions are being made because in fact if if the difference isn't an issue when you have a termination yeah what it is is irrelevant you make that decision so it's not about whether you're for or against abortion yeah do you get what i mean i i, I and see so what those you're saying, numbers yeah. are staggering yes Absolutely, and and I think. Well, but it 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 um, it's complicated as well because you're you're bringing up pro rights issues. Well, in a way, I'm not bringing up pro rights because it's not because that's my point. It's not whether pro you're, rights or pro life. Well, it's not because it's not even whether you're for or against abortion. Mm. Because often both sides, whether mm -hmm. they're for it or against it, mm -hmm. make the exception. Right. When it's disability. When it's disability, yeah. Just like yeah. the law does. Right. So, for example, in this country, you can only have an abortion up to 26, 28 weeks. I don't know. Yes. Except if it's disabled. And yeah. then you can have it up to the day before. Right. You can kill the child. Yes, basically. basically. And when mm. in equally, you can kill it when it's born. You just starve it to death. And, you know, you say it's disabled and it's fine. So... And so it isn't about pro-life in that sense as, as a kind of that, that kind of political idea. Yeah. It is just a, a social reality for disabled people. Yeah. That I think is... That society is in mass denial about. Because if I say that to people, you know, it's kind of like... You know, and they, they want to say, oh, it's about abortion. It's not about abortion. It's not about a woman's right. Because, you know, they're different things. And, and those issues... For the people who make those decisions, th at that point, disability isn't irrelevant. Yeah. It's when it becomes irrelevant, becomes relevant, that, that the, the Holocaust starts. Definitely. I, uh, I, I, I do appreciate what you're saying. But, I, but to me, and that's where culture is so important. Yes. Because, and I, I always say this, and I'm sure my listener is completely bored with it because I say it to most guests, what's interesting in culture... And, that, and I think Harry Potter does it. Mm. From what I've read of your thing, obviously, because I've never <laughs> read Harry Potter. <laughs> but uh, but we, we live in a society that has that, on the one hand, a holocaust against a certain particular group. Yeah. But equally, on the other hand, we as disabled people have a degree of equality and justice yes. that we have never had before. So, so you've got two ultra extremes. Yes. And culture is to me is what is worth examining. Literature yes. And think, because the, the the battle for that, for the for those two ideas is is where it takes place is in literature, cinema, absolutely, absolutely, and culture. Absolutely. Because you you can change um, 
you can change laws, you can you you can create legislation on behalf of marginalized groups, but you can't really change general perceptions. And I think that's that's where most prejudice comes from. And it's it's usually the the insidious kind of prejudice that you don't really notice. You can't really put your finger on it, but you know it's there. And you know, as you as you said, you know, it's 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 all about what our cultural um inclinations are you know what we've been raised to to think and believe and and how to to um to perceive others and how to treat social others so absolutely but coming back to harry potter (laughs) based on what i've just said you see and i think this uh, linus what's his name Remus Lupin? Remus. Yeah, not Remus Lupin. Remus Lupin. <laughs> See, I've got yeah. the, the L and the R. I, I, I think that you can read it as quite an insidious character. In the sense that yeah. I think what often you get in culture to deal with these two extremes of the yes. extermination and the equality is you get, you, you get society constructing and i would say i've seen a trend over the last 30 years of the construction of what i call the good cripple and the bad cripple yes absolutely and so that's the worthy and the unworthy yeah and and he's trying so hard to be you know a good werewolf i some I, I think he sometimes loses sight of the fact that he has assimilated the mainstream's ideas about werewolves in general um that's one of the things i i, I discussed in the last part of the chapter i mean He's a good man, and I think um, he um, he wants to to fit in in society as as much as possible. But um, he and I I don't think it's intentional that he's prejudiced towards his own kind. I think it's 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 over a period of time. It's impossible for a person not to absorb, you know, or to assimilate this the, these identities, these these perceptions, these prejudices that have been inflicted upon them since childhood, you know, because. Um, he wants to he wants to be a good wizard he wants he wants wizards to to have you know sort of better relationships with with werewolves but at the same time he has a lot of ideas about where about the werewolf group um that are not necessarily true uh and that's because he has been raised amongst wizards. He's been raised to think of werewolves the way wizards do, even though, you know, he is a werewolf. Yeah. But equally psycho- psychologically, yeah. in order to deal with, with, with what he is and the world he's in, he does need to negate the value of the bad yeah. werewolf, which is the same with the good cripple and the bad cripple. Yeah. Often you get a lot of disabled people who really don't like other disabled people, especially yeah. severely disabled people, yeah. Yeah. because it makes them look bad. It re- it it shows it reflects to themselves yeah. how general society really sees them, and I think you've captured that very well in 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 this chapter. Thank you. Thank and, you. That's very kind of you to say. <laughs> but you just said something that I thought was very interesting. I hadn't thought about. <clears throat> you said he was a good man. Yeah. And I find that very interesting in that it's just made me think, and again, this is an idea, yeah. is that, and I don't mean it as in a kind of an appropriation by the mainstream, mainstream but to do good, mm-hmm. to be good, one has to be in 
the normalised world. Not necessarily. No, I don't agree with that at all. In the sense that, i.e. to have power, mm. to achieve change, yeah. money, yeah. to achieve change, often you have to be... You, you don't usually achieve those things as being the other. Yes, but the Barack but, Obama, right? Back to but, that. but but the thing is that Remus doesn't really have those things. It, it's not about with him. When I say he's a good man, it's not about him um, deciding that he's gonna be good um, to others because he is empowered. You know, I think he he makes good decisions. He values other people because. He just has this intrinsic value of human life, and that's that's what I mean when I describe him as a but good man. If he if if he'd lived his life as the other, as yeah, if if he'd would lived he amongst the opportunity to be good, uh, he probably would have had a, a completely different perspective of wizards than he does now. But um, it doesn't matter where you're raised, and I think this is one of the the messages that. Um, Rolling is is trying to 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 send to society how and where you're raised does determine your you know your viewpoint and it determines who you become to a large extent but the individual still has a choice you know because Lupin has faced a lot of persecution in society just as much as the the werewolves who decide that they're gonna attack and bite as many wizards as possible he has gone through the same things that they have gone through but he's made a choice you know that um he's not going to inflict upon the rights and liberties of other people just because you know he has been victimized and doesn't um, jk rowling want it both ways there well no i don't i don't necessarily it's about think the individual so. but it's also about society it's yeah, and therefore, well, if you, well, it is. The, the individuals that don't then act good or be civilised or whatever the word is, it, it you can blame them as individuals. Um, not necessarily. It, it's um, it's it's more complex than that. It's far more complex than that. You, you can make the example. You can take the example as well of Harry and you know his nemesis Voldemort. Um, and the last chapter of the book talks about this, where you have you have. Two children that have been raised in uh, disadvantage. This is Harry Potter. The should be delinquent. Yes, that's mm-hmm. the final chapter. The should be delinquent. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have two children who've been raised in uh, disadvantaged upbringing, basically um, negative environments. Um, guardians who projected fear and you know neglect and abandonment on them throughout their whole lives, and then you have one child who still is able to be compassionate towards others and then another child Voldemort in this case who just becomes this monster Um, and you could argue that he is in Tom Riddle it was his real name he's in a um, he's in a position where he's more likely to take that road than Harry because at least Harry has middle class connections and you know his parents were revered in the wizarding world so Harry has more reasons to be good but at the same time you have to take into account that Harry has he has experienced many of the things that Voldemort has experienced but he's also made the decision that he doesn't want others to experience this pain Okay, it's like me breaking my arm, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm. It, it was an accident, and I'm feeling, you know, 
awful but the only thing that would make me feel better is um, to see the other person who caused the accident in as much pain as I am I think that would make me um, not so good as a person wanting to inflict pain and suffering on other people because I've I've experienced pain and suffering so I, I, at the end of the day I think we do we even do, if they've pushed you out the tree well <laughs> that made you break your arm um <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, because you've just described most yeah. of mainstream society. Yeah. If yeah. I'm suffering, I want them to suffer as bad. Yeah. Especially if I can yeah. blame them for my suffering. Yeah. Which I personally think is wrong. Yeah, it, that that is wrong. Um, and 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 in it, in this case, it's 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 more complex in this case because it's not intentional. You know, I don't think Voldemort's mother intentionally decided that she was gonna die and leave him alone. You know, and I don't think um, many of the things that 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 he experienced, it's not because. Um, um, society necessarily targeted him as as an outsider. Um, a lot of what Harry experiences with the Dursleys, you know, they're his his relatives in the in the normal or Muggle world. <laughs> You've got that look, like, oh my gosh, I have no idea what she's talking about. Um, you know, it's a lot of it is intentional. They do, his aunt Petunia really sets out to spite him because, um, you know, she she hated her sister who was magical and she wasn't. So it's, it was. It, it came down to jealousy, really, um, and so Harry has he has the choice to become just as spiteful, just as vengeful as Voldemort, I think. But you know, he decides not to, and well, I I argue both sides in that chapter because I, I I realize that maybe the reason why Harry turns out to be good is because he he is empowered in a way that Voldemort isn't, but. Um, you can't really take away from the fact that he does have the choice, whether he whether he is empowered or not. He does have mm. the choice. So, um, but he's also given the tools, the kind of middle class tools to make that choice of education, articulation. Well, Voldemort acquires the the tools in a different way from Harry, but he does have the same. I mean, he's educated at Hogwarts as well. Mm. You know, he acquires. Um, Lots of, you know, he has his own posse growing in the same way that Harry has, you know, he's surrounded by friends, you know, he has Hermione and Ron, yeah, you know. A good slap. <laughs> and Ron. Ron needs a good punching as well, doesn't he? He's an interesting character, isn't he? They're just a bunch of, you know, liberals, aren't they, really? Uh, I wouldn't say Ron Which is, is what a liberal. people are going to be saying listening to this. Yeah. They're just a couple of liberals. <laughs> I don't know. I it, it's it's interesting because you've got that trio, and I think Harry is probably the most ambivalent of all three of them. I don't think he's a liberal or a conservative. You've got Ron, who is actually quite conservative because of his up, upbringing. You know, he's been raised to to fear werewolves and fear giants, and to think of um, creatures like elves and goblins as inferior. And then you've got Hermione, who is the liberal. You know, she's the one who um, uh, always tries to stand up for these groups, even when Ron is saying, "Are you?" mad you know um and then you've got harry in the middle who you know he wasn't raised in the wizarding world and he's not as socially aware as hermione so he's just sort of blasé about everything but at the end of the day you know what harry what harry's 
main value system is that everyone else is entitled to the same rights and privileges, the same amount of care, the same amount of love as I would want for myself. And that's a f- the fundamental life principle that, you know, he lives by. And I think that's that's the most important thing. Um, that's the choice that I was talking about. And what about Hermione? We haven't spoken about her much. Are you a big admirer of hers? Um, I, I like Hermione. I, I like her social awareness. You know, I like her. I like the fact that she has this huge social conscience. Then again, the the reason why she does is probably because she falls in this category. You know, Muggleborn. She's 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 um, born to two non magical parents, and in the series finale, this particular group becomes extremely persecuted. Um, it, there's an, uh, a sort of extermination strategy going on there. You could you could compare it to the Holocaust, I guess, um, or some sort of uh, enslavement regime. And um, so you could argue that the reason why Hermione is like this is because she falls into this group. So uh, she has a reason to care, whereas you have people like Ron and Harry who who are empowered by being linked to the magical world. So... Um, they have to sort of learn to to view Muggleborns differently, and they have to learn to look at society differently as well. You've got Ron, who has always accepted everything as a given, until he is forced to go on the run with his friends. That's when he realizes, you know, the Wizarding World really isn't all that great, and there's a lot of things we need to change. But before before he's forced to to live as an outcast himself by association with Hermione. He has no clue what's going on, so it's um, it all comes back to this this notion of information and awareness. Um, you can't necessarily make people care unless you know they see firsthand, and um, unless they, they 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 are impacted in some way. I think. Um, so the the problem really with mainstream society, whether it's in the wizarding world or in our world, is that people tend to become so insular, whether it's disabled people only hanging out with disabled people, werewolves only associating with werewolves and deciding that as a group they're going to hate wizards, um, you know, black people who only have black friends, that sort of thing. It's, it's, it's very dangerous, I think. I, I think we need to have a more... Um, a more, I hate the, to use the word multiculturalist, but it's the only thing that comes to mind, but a more diverse model where so, people, people can draw on different references and recognize that, you know, individuality is this, this, this composite thing that draws on multiple references instead of just this one, you know, unilateral identity that you must have in order to fit in somewhere. So coming back to your PhD uh, focus, yeah. the, the novelist that you were talking about, yeah, uh, and that that notion of the the split identity and not yeah. and and that not knowing which yeah. one to go with, yeah. Are are you coming to a conclusion? Because in a way, you're saying that very much about you're saying about disability and race and black, and, yeah, and, and all that kind of stuff. It's all there, yeah. Uh, what what's your conclusion about? What's the conclusion of this novel that you're, you're studying? Well, my conclusion about all of this really is that um, people should try to be less anxious about embracing any one particular you know type of identity this this whole this whole idea that you have to negotiate 
a post-colonial identity until you're comfortable with it. Or um, in the case of Remus Lupin or um, any of the characters from Harry Potter, this idea that they have to be one thing or the other. I just think it's unnecessary. <clears throat> but, is it unnecessary, but, though, because basically white Western capitalism is going to win in the end? No, no, <laughs> no. It's unnecessary because at the end of the day, it shouldn't matter. Because the, the the fundamental principle here is that it really shouldn't matter what color you are, whether you're disabled, which God you pray to, or, you know... Um, whether your father was rich or 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 poor or if your mother was a prostitute or whatever you know you as a person you're an individual who is valuable in your own right because you exist you know but yeah but <laughs> uh, when i said white western capitalism yeah. I, 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 I know i said that flippantly but to some extent shouldn't we fight within our own groups to preserve our, our own identities and heritage, given the war, and I, I will use the term war, that, that white Western capitalism is raging against the globe. Yeah, I think we can... Um, I think that it, there is a way of preserving uh, cultural identities or um, social identities without becoming completely insular without becoming completely cut off from everything else or denying um, someone else. Um, and in fact, you could argue that the only way you will challenge the rampage of, say, white Western capitalism is through an equal recognition of diversity and the value of others. Exactly. In, yeah. in, as, as allies in that that fight against the homogenization of humanity. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly how I would put it. Yeah. <laughs> right there, Dad. <laughs> what was it? It's a doctrine of compassion. I remember that. <laughs> now, now what, what do I say to all my friends who say to me, Paul, you're obsessed with disability. Yeah. You've even now got people on talking about it in Harry Potter. <laughs> You're really, really sad. <laughs> well, I would tell them to go and read the Harry Potter books and then decide. So what else can we drag into the disability debate that no one's ever thought of? Um, What's next for you? I don't know. Uh you mean what? What's next? As in, in terms of what's my next project? Indeed, yes. <laughs> Which I hopefully you're going to include disability as well, so uh, we can have you back on the show in a year's time. I in think. a year's time, I don't know. Um, I I still need to finish my PhD <laughs> thesis. And how Maybe, is that going? It's it's going all right. Um, When's uh, the finish? The finish. I I hope to submit by September thirtieth. But, of course, you do have a problem if in the middle of a PhD you write in other books, really, aren't you? Yes, I do. I have a that's, huge problem. That's a bit of a mistake. Um, but, fortunately, this is finished now, and I've put it behind me, and it's um, it's finally come out. It's finally published. I forgot to give you the blog uh, reference okay. for... Um, 
for the book. It's um, www.thelppc.com. That's T H E L P P C.com. Slash. <laughs> What's this? www.thelppc. No, LPPC. There's no V. No, n- not, not a V. The, as in the article, the. The. Yeah. It stands for the Little People's Publishing so Company. T H E L P C C. L P P C. L P P C. Yeah. Dot com. Dot com. Yeah. And then slash. Mm. Karen Brown. Mm. Then a dash. <laughs> then blog with two G's. Mm. Then a dash. Mm. And then prejudice in Harry Potter. Prejudice in Harry Potter. And when you say dash, do you mean underscore? It's not an underscore. It's just that little one, the the the, dash. the tiny dash. Right. Yeah, it's, it's in the middle as opposed to at the bottom. Yeah, right. in the middle. Yeah, because usually internet things are underscores, aren't they? Yeah, no, this one is an underscore. And what will they see when they come to that? When they come to that site, they'll see um, you sort spend of your an... evenings writing about this. Well, no, <laughs> no, it's just it's just a site that tells them about the book, and uh, it, there's a link on there if 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 they want to go and get the book from the webs from so, uh, Virtual uh, Bookworm. Are you disappointed that you haven't done a Dumbledore gay chapter? Sort of. Well, I, I, I started planning this project you years ago. You could put your ago. BHF deal for another year No, I can't put my. You know, it's so expensive for, for foreigners to, to study here. It's ridiculous. I really need to finish my PhD and uh, get a job. <laughs> I'm going to stop by University of Wolverhampton and ask them if they can hire me next year. Um, but yeah, I... Um, I, I started planning the project about four or five years ago and I planned the seven chapters and the whole Dumbledore being gay thing never really cropped up. I should have known. I should have seen it. That but, progressive you know. <laughs> transformer could only have been an, an old queen. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I didn't, um, I, I, it just, it just never, it wasn't part of my initial plans. So when I finished the book and she came out with this, I was like, wow. So I, I sort of mentioned it in my, uh, conclusion very briefly, Mm. I think. Uh, but I didn't. Under, uh, I should have known. (laughs) No. No, I, I just I just said, you know, I, I sort of mentioned the, the, the public uproar that it caused um, when she came out and said he was gay. Um, but I, I didn't write a chapter on it. The chapters I wrote were sort of um, about the social hierarchy in the wizarding world. That's the first one. Um, the second chapter, um, I, I talk about how the hierarchy is maintained. You've got um, ignorance, indifference, intolerance, and the Hold other on, one. Ignorance. Indifference, indifference, intolerance, intolerance, yeah. and insecurity. That's very good. And that—that that was my favorite chapter to write. Chapter two, the um, four things, the the four eyes, I call them the four eyes, um, and it's sort of a, a play on the fact that Harry wears glasses. But I didn't mention that in, that in the chapter at all. Um, four eyes you get it it's like mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what we used to call people who wore glasses in high school it's it's uh it was a, a nickname um 
And then the next chapter, um, examining the mindset of the house elf. Uh, what I find was uh, what I found was that most Harry Potter readers didn't like to talk about the slavery of house elves. They wanted to avoid the issue. Mm-hmm. It's like taboo, you know. It's like Tony Blair coming out and apologizing for slavery. Uh uh-uh, uh, not in a million years. You can't do that because it wasn't our fault. And well, he not. can't really, given yeah. that he's enslaved most of the nation now. So. <laughs> Exactly. Well, I just I, I thought it was interesting that that Rowling was brave enough to create an enslaved race, mm-hmm. and I thought it was interesting. So, how, without giving any work, do they get free at all, or do they just remain enslaved? Well, by the end of the series, we don't really um, hear anything about them getting free. I, I, well, it's sort of implied that eventually they will get free, but it will. Um, it will take years, probably centuries. And even if new legislation is created that says, well, um, wizards now have to pay elves or, you know, they have to um, let them sleep in a bed as opposed to sleeping on the floor or let them wear proper clothes as opposed to just wearing... They wear... Revolution these, yeah. is what I call for. Elf revolution. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's the whole thing. The The elves would never... They would never revolt because their their whole mindset is so colonialized. <laughs> well, <laughs> there isn't a better word for it, really. Um, so the chapter three, I call it "Extreme Measures: Examining the Mindset of the House Elf," because they weren't always slaves; they became slaves. And I sort of, you know, postulated a theory as to how they became slaves and what sort of maintained that over the centuries. They've been enslaved for about four four centuries. Um, and then chapter four, of course, is the one I sent you um, on squibs and werewolves. A closer look at the disability issue. Um, chapter five, what's wrong with Hermione calling herself a mudblood? And this is uh, this was the chapter where I sort of made reference to something that happens in the very last book, where Hermione all of a sudden just blurts out, you know, I'm a mudblood. And it's, it's a pejorative. It's what pure bloods. Um, did no one know until that point? Well, yes, everybody knew that she was a muggle-born, but the, the political did not use their own uh, yeah, negative terminology. The, right. The political, t- the politically correct term is muggle-born or non-magical parents, um, uh, and uh, so mudblood is like an epithet. So she uses the the epithet to basically refer to herself. So it's it's sort of like black people referring to themselves with the N word, or you so know, basically she yeah. uses political correct terminology until that point. Yes, but it, but equally she needs to use that term at that point because of the the threat yes. towards her and, yeah. and her kind. Yeah, and I, I think up until this point, um, Harry that sounds like a metaphor for political correctness. Yeah, it is. Which often it is. just sanitizes yeah. the yeah. true face of oppression. Exactly, exactly, and I think up until this point. Um, Harry and Ron didn't really realize how much, you know, in danger Hermione was. I think from the second book, um, Chamber of Secrets, you get an idea that Hermione really is, um, she, she's in a, she, she belongs to a social group that is very vulnerable. If you pay attention and if you care about political issues and, you know, one, one group 
receiving less sympathy than than another you know as a reader you would notice this instantly but i, I don't think most of the harry potter readership real re- realized just how 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 stigmatized muggleborns were until um later on in the series probably the last book where they become like a hunted group um so you know it, it's just a matter of time when you have um when you have these dominant perceptions that one group is is inferior to another, it's just a matter of time before we decide that we're gonna exterminate them, you know. Which is what you were saying about uh, um, disabled about disabled theory. people, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and then chapter six, oh, chapter five. I the, the question I'm asking here is, um, you know, what's wrong with her saying that she's a mudblood, you know? And I look at the politics of naming and self naming, so. Um, if if it's if it's wrong for you to use the n word to refer to black people, why is it okay for black people to use the n word in rap songs amongst themselves? You know, so I sort of talk about that. And tell uh, us why. <laughs> <laughs> well, it it creates further barriers, doesn't it? You you it, instead of uh, the, the argument that they use it's with, with gay people as well um, em- embracing people. yeah embracing words like cripples yeah cripples or, or 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 gay people using the f word to or queen uh, yeah queen or, or, or a faggot or whatever you know um, it, it's it's in a sense being able to say the word strips it of its power to offend, to belittle them. But then again, um, it depends on who says it. You know, them saying it to each other, you know, they can have a laugh, haha, it's no big deal. Um, but um, if somebody else from the dominant group says it to them, you know, it is a big deal. You know, so we can't really pretend as if you know using epithets among ourselves you know negates the epithet because it doesn't you know it it just creates i think uh further dichotomies of privilege but you could argue yeah because i agree yeah but you could argue that in a way that's what they've often said that they're doing but that's not what they're really doing what do you they're, mean? They're not really trying to negate the power of that terminology at all. Yeah. They're actually trying to say, well, actually, I don't want to keep pretending that we're treated equally. Yes. We still are the N-word yes. majority. Yes. We still are queens. We yes. still are cripples in reality. Yes. Even though you like to call us uh, black, mm-hmm. gay, yeah, yeah. disabled. Yeah. And it's actually about trying to make real their own conception of their oppression. Right. When, in fact, they've been trying to deny it or forced to deny it by an illusion of equality. Absolutely. And I think this is this is exactly what Hermione is doing when she says, look, I am a mudblood. Um, but at the end of the day, um, I don't think it's it's something that should become acceptable for her to say about herself all the time because it would create a barrier between herself and her friends okay it's it's good for her to make them understand that you know this is the reality you know you might 
consider me to be equal to you or probably even your superior because I get better grades and, you know, I'm, you know, I always ace my exams and whatever. But the rest of society doesn't view me in this way. You know, I'm this this second class human being. Okay, fine. But I think she has to leave it there. She can't go around calling herself a mudblood every day, especially in their company, because... Is that what she does? No, she only uses it once, but... Um, so it's about thinking about using terms strategically. Yeah, exactly. For, for their power and impact. Exactly, because... And just constantly using the N-word in every rap yeah, song ever. Yeah, exactly. You, you trivialise it. You take away... Um, the the historical significance you know the 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 struggle then of having to overcome you know the the, the oppression that the word caused in in the first place you sort of trivialize it and i and I, I don't think that's a good thing because at the end of the day harry and ron you know being part of the empowered pure blood or half blood group can never really say um uh, they can never call her a mudblood and she can never tell them that it's okay to call me a mudblood. You know, it's just not, it's not well, acceptable. Well, in a way, she, it isn't okay for them to call her a mudblood no. because they have no conception of the impre- oppression. The oppression, exactly. Behind that terminology. Exactly. And that, that's the reason why I don't think it's, I don't think it's, it, it's okay for it to become um, like widely acknowledged as acceptable mm. for people to use epithets to refer to themselves. Mm. Yeah. I can imagine our listeners are just sitting here saying they're just far too clever for their own good, those two. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so just proving how clever we both are, uh, let's have a little talk about political correctness because we've just mentioned that. Yeah. And I, I, I'm very I'm very interested in political correctness. And we've just, I think we've just explored it a little bit. Yeah. In that I... I I think one of the ways of negating the mainstream, the normal, mm-hmm. the white, the straight, whatever you want to call it, yeah. the way that they negate a kind of th- any threat yeah. to their own power is by labelling something politically correct. Yes. Because often they mislabel it or, or exactly. they misunderstand what exactly. political correctness is. Absolutely. To me, political yeah. correctness has always been about identifying the genealogy of oppression behind terminology yeah. or anything that you apply it to. It's not, which is what the mainstream have made it, which is the sanitising yes. of mm. a term for their own use. Yes. And that's a misunderstanding of what political correctness. But equally, it's what they've made political correctness. Yeah. So in a way, often what they're saying is wrong. They're right in the sense... You shouldn't just sanitise it. We should deal with the issue. Yeah. The history yeah. of the oppression behind it. Absolutely. And and often, you know, inventing politically correct terms is just a... It's a way out of dealing with, with the history, of dealing with the guilt, you know. And um, the current practice. Exactly. So I know, just, I know people who will, may call me a cripple. Yeah. Uh, older people. Yeah. Or talk about spastics, those kind of phrases. And younger people talk about disabled, you know, very right on. Yeah. When in fact, the person who's calling me a spastic or a cripple can actually treat me much fairer, uh, and than the person who's calling me disabled. They've just picked up a sanitised word to hide behind. Yeah. And I'm sure the same is true with with race and gender and sexuality. Yeah, as well. absolutely, absolutely. And then, and um, I I guess it all comes back to um, what. 
what our governments do for us, really. Um, who is it that makes the, the, the decision that a certain, um, as you call it, sanitized term uh, is supposed to be used as opposed to, you know, the pejorative or mm. the epithet? Mm. And w what were their motivations for coming up with this, you know? Um, is it to sort of gloss over the fact that uh, people are being oppressed or being targeted with verbal or physical abuse? I think actually that, that's a really good point. I've mm. just thought about this. Is that often it, it, the people who who kind of very quickly tag on to a kind of sanitised names yeah. are in fact the key colonial oppressors yeah. of the day, which of course in relation to disabled people are. The charities. Yeah. Charities are the main col colonialisers of disabled people. Absolutely. And and uh, and I think that's that's very interesting. And they're the ones who often are most rigid in their use of sanitised terminology about disabled people. Mm. So they we often say they uh, they talk the talk, but they can't walk the walk. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's because really they are the key colonialisers of difference. Yeah, it's it's in service of normal. Colonialism hasn't really um it hasn't it hasn't been eradicated. It's just taken on different forms now. Because mm. you you mentioned the colonialization of disabled people and um the colonization of Africa is taking place, you know, today the same, you know, in the same way. Um you see these these pitiful faces on the television, um, and people are giving so much money to charities, and you wonder what's being done with the money. Mm. And I, I know people are probably gonna, um, you know, crucify me for saying this, but I, you know, I I, I feel I, I feel very strongly about it. I feel as if people are being used. These faces, like the face of. Um, a, a young child with epilepsy or the face of uh, the face of famine yeah the face of famine the face of a wheelchair for example these are just they've become sort of um, money making symbols now you know where charities are concerned and I don't know it's hard to find a genuine charity mm. it really is well and, and i often yeah. think it's not really even about the charity yeah because i don't doubt that a lot of the charities say with famine and, mm -hmm. and even with disability do yeah. good work yeah but the point is is they are still colonizers yeah and equally what they are also enabling is the undermining of political change yeah and yeah. i think that's very true of Africa. Absolutely, absolutely. And they're sort of legitimizing the pity response, mm -hmm. which is the, the the biggest problem I have with it, really. I, I, I feel so strongly about it, I can't even talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've been talking for nearly two hours, so you're not that too bad. So yeah. what the final chapter... Is parenting and prejudice? Um, oh, that's a penultimate chapter. Yep, the pen Parent so what's yeah. parenting and prejudice? Parenting first? and prejudice is just... Um, it's where I discuss um, how upbringing determines how children will behave or what they will believe. At the end of the day, I think, you know, when we become adults and we've seen the world a little bit, um, we learn to divorce ourselves from, you know, certain ideas that our parents had that 
are probably not politically correct anymore, you know, but um, you're still bombarded by these idiosyncrasies that you acquired during childhood. And um, with this chapter, I just use the examples of um, a few of the characters in the books who are sort of they're kind of polarized as bad characters. You've you've got characters who are polarized as bad and characters who are polarized as good. So the pol- the, the the two bad characters that I used um, as children, Draco Malfoy, who is Harry's enemy at school, and Dudley Dursley, who is his muggle cousin. And um so these the both of these kids are just terribly prejudiced and they're not just prejudiced against one group they're prejudiced against anybody who is different and so in this chapter i i look at how their parents have helped to develop their identities as prejudiced people and then um i give uh, examples of characters who you would say they fall into the good character the the good category characters like Ron and even Hermione who is like you know the champion of elf rights and so on but she herself has certain prejudices that you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily point her out as a prejudiced person but she does have certain prejudices Ron has prejudices that are accepted as sort of societal norms, which sometimes are the most dangerous kinds of prejudice to have. So here you've got this really nice, sweet character. You know, he's quite a laugh, and he's he's well-intentioned most of the time. Um, but some of the things that he believes and some of the, the ways in which he reacts towards social others, it's very disturbing. Towards the end of the book, though, I think Ron, Ron recognizes where he has gone wrong and he recognizes the, the prejudices that he had before and changes them. But that's not always the case, you know. And once again, it comes back to choice. It comes back to people... Um, recognizing the ways in which they are privileged or what sort of um, how the how how being a part of the mainstream or not falling into a disadvantaged category benefits them I think a big part of prejudice is how people just sort of take things for granted you know without being able to look at other people and say, well, hmm, um, I wonder what it must be like to be in that position, you know, how I would feel, how I would want to be treated, you know. Um, and Ron eventually comes around and, and recognizes, you know, the ways in which he, he he was prejudiced before and changes towards the end of the, the seventh novel. Um, but you've got um, other characters who are just... Um, immovable in their prejudice uh so yeah in chapter six i just talk about how parenting sort of develops or helps in the development of these personalities um dispositions and so forth but at the end of the day these people have the choice and they do make certain choices towards the end of the series i'm I'm not for this they have the choice no you don't think they have the choice i think well children don't really have that big of a choice but adults do and equally by the time they become adults yeah they've become so ingrained acculturated into ignorance and intolerance and prejudice that it isn't their choice and and, and i I think uh, and i will play the song actually there's a song from uh uh south pacific yeah called taught to hate 
Yeah. And it's about how you, you're taught to hate. Yeah. Well, absolutely. Well, so for some people, it's 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 more difficult, and I guess it it's it comes down to exposure and intelligence, you know. Um, but I, I do think that people have a choice. I really do. But if if you're not put in that position, whether it's by fate or circumstance or what whatever, if if you're not if you're not directly confronted with it, most people will never change. And that's why parenting is so crucial. You know, raising children to be open-minded and accepting towards social others to not pity people who are different from themselves or regard them as less worthy of the things that you would enjoy as a person which is what um, Harry's aunt does with his cousin from a very very early age she teaches Dudley to think of himself as better than Harry because Harry is marginalized Mar- Harry is an, is an outsider um, you know you've got Draco Malfoy who and, and, and even Ron, who, um, you know, his parents have taught him to think of werewolves as these bitter, you know, violent, um, be- magical beings. They are wizards, but because they have this disability where they, they change at the full moon, you know, um, the moment Ron realizes that Lupin is a werewolf, even though he liked him before, he immediately turns against him in this really violent way. Um, but the, the mere fact that... Um, Ron eventually changes his, his social outlook. I think it's hopeful, but he doesn't do it overnight, you know. He changes his outlook towards house elves as well. I remember in the fourth book, Hermione starts this Society for the Protection of Elf Rights, and Ron is completely against it. And towards the end of the seventh book, he totally changes his outlook, but it's only after having experienced... Um, I, I won't tell you what happens in the book, why he changes, but having experienced something really I've traumatic. Never read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the readers probably will want to read it for themselves, but a major character, well, not really major, one a character that the trio had come really close to dies. And in the final book. In the final book, and Ron witnesses the death. Yeah, you and can it, tell me that he's one real thing. Yeah, he, he really, he really, um, he, he becomes someone who, instead of thinking of himself as a wizard being the only category of being who is worthy of consideration and respect he begins to think of other magical beings as you know as um as vulnerable as himself as a wizard and yeah intrinsically equal and that's a huge step for ron you know but it comes back to his choices because if it weren't for his choice of friends and Harry as well, if Harry had chosen to hang out with Draco Malfoy instead of, you know, Ron and Hermione, Harry, Harry would have probably acquired some of the same wizard prejudices. So the yeah. chances of having a network yeah. of, of people and experiences and opportunities to... To, to make that positive choice yeah. is so remote that it that I would say it can't be a choice. No, it's it's not that it's remote. It's 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 <clears throat> it, it really it's not that it, it's remote. It starts with parenting. It really does, because um, in uh, 
if you compare the two pure bloods, Ron and Draco Malfoy are both pure bloods. And Draco has since his birth, Draco has just been bombarded with with information and doctrine, you know, about other magical beings and his worth as a pure blood wizard. Whereas, you know, Ron Weasley's parents have raised him to think of himself as, you know, equal at least with Muggleborns or other, you know, wizards who are not born in the in in the wizarding world so in both cases both sets of parents have inflicted certain prejudices on their children but in a less with ron it's in a less sort of um aggressive aggressive way um and um so his ability to change through choice is not his own This is complicated, isn't it? <laughs> it's it's it is his own at the end of the day. It really oh, you're is. You're a great believer. No, in no, 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 no. It is it is his own because um Which is brings us on to that final chapter. Yeah. Right? The should be delinquent. The should is, be delinquent. Which yeah. is what you what we've discussed that chapter before, but yeah. it's what you're saying now, really. Yeah, because you don't even if um <clears throat> If Ron is raised to be respectful towards Muggleborns, um, he doesn't necessarily have to go in, go out into the world, go to Hogwarts and meet Muggleborns and say, "Oh, you and I are equal," or believe that in his mind. You know, he could still, especially after being exposed to. Um, teachers who who sometimes inflict upon the children this idea that you know pure bloods and half bloods are expected to perform better than muggleborns you know that that could give a person a sense of false pride really um and so at the end of the day individuals i think have to filter out information whether it's information you got from your parents information you get from the media uh from your friends and so on and so forth and decide you know what it is that you believe and your own personal value system and i think ron eventually does that he doesn't do it like immediately it takes time but eventually he does it because of all these coincidences and confluences of opportunity experience people that enable Facilitate. It facilitated the choice, yes. But it's not personal choice. But it is. <laughs> so let's just bring it, is, it back. It is personal let's choice. Let's bring it I back. To At you. the end of the day, it is personal choice. <laughs> you stick with that. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. I, I accept that there is a degree. But my problem with personal choice is, is the is when that doesn't go right. Yeah, there is a tendency to either pathologize mm-hmm. people for making the wrong choice, i.e. Uh, they're incapable, they're mentally ill, that's why they're evil. Or, no, no. Or that, those kind of choices. That's what worries me about that, that kind of idea. But bringing it back to you. Yeah. So what what do you hold on to of your faith as a Mormon? <laughs> your original faith as a Mormon, your, yeah. your doctrine of compassion. How does that affect you now, given that you, you, you obviously come to this mm. as, as, as a liberal, let's say, I know that's a dirty word, <laughs> especially in America. But uh, I think of it as a good word. It's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, do you think you you come to that personal choice of of on your childhood and and the things that you were brought up with? Yeah. Well, that's made it easy for you, or is it hard? Um. 
I, I think for me, uh, the my background has made it easy for me to to make those choices. Um, nevertheless, the temptation is always there to sort of pretend as if, um, you know, I never had that background in the first place. And, you know, I'm just as normal and main, well, normal in quotation marks again and mainstream as everyone else, which is the, the temptation that befalls most people who fall within a, a disadvantaged group, whether it's disabled or racial minorities, religious minorities and so on. You want to fit in. At the end of the day, you don't want to feel like an outcast. And um, there's a certain amount of social stigma, I think, involved in... Um, activism of any kind or um, acknowledging that one is um, not like everybody else. There is a certain amount of stigma involved in that as well. And so I think it, it is a huge personal choice to say, well, I'm not going to pretend. I'm going to say things um, that people might not necessarily agree with or look favorably upon. And I'm not going to try to pretend like I'm everybody else because I know that I'm different. And I know that society recognizes me as different even amidst the, the you know, the, the, the constraints of political correctness and trying to create this, this sense of homogeneity and um, uh, this false fairness, which doesn't really exist, I think. Um, so the, the choice is there, and, and I don't think it's an easy choice. I think my upbringing and the, my education, you know, my experiences have facilitated the choice that I made, but at the same time, um, I still think it, it's, it's a choice that entails a certain amount of difficulty and willfulness on my part. That's interesting because I was just looking up some, some one of the bits that I, I read and, and this in one of the pages. Uh, you talk about Ron's character exemplifies the convenience of what Fisk, who's another writer, calls overgeneralised categories. Yeah. Or what is more widely referred to as essentialism. Essentialism, and yes. And as Alport explained, Alport being another art writer... <laughs> it's it another takes, social theorist. It yeah. takes less effort to overgeneralise and effort is, dis, is disagreeable. Yes. I actually think it's very hard work to overgeneralise. You think so? I do. And it usually takes an immense amount of effort and imagination to do that because the reality... And, and it's that... Prejudice mm-hmm. is very hard work because you have things all around you all the time showing you it's wrong, mm-hmm. it's not true. Mm-hmm. And you actually have to put an awful lot of effort in to remain indifferent, indignant, indifferent, ignorant, intolerant, yeah. and all of those things. And I actually often think it's actually much harder. You think it's harder to I be do. prejudiced? I do, and uh, I would disagree. You would with disagree Allport. with Allport there? No, because the the thing and and the reason why prejudice is so insidious sometimes is that people don't even recognize that they're prejudiced. Mm. You know, you could. Um, and that's why I mean, it's very hard work. It's very hard work to ignore the facts of what's in front of you. So, for example... Why is, that, why is that hard work, though, if it is the social norm? It's, it's, if it's the social norm, it's not hard work. It's very easy. Well, often it's... it's I would say often it's not the social norm. I would mm-hmm. say intolerance and ignorance are not social, socially valued norms. They're actually seen as a very 
negative thing mm. almost universally in society. Yes. Even amongst intolerant, ignorant people. To be that is a bad thing. And so when I you meet people, uh, they will often say, you know, oh, and it's that thing about saying, oh, well, I like you, Paul. But yeah. I don't think of you as disabled. Yeah. It's actually very hard work not yeah. to see me as disabled. It's like saying, yeah. I like you, but I don't think of you as black. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, how can you do that? Yeah, how could you miss that? <laughs> <laughs> and that's actually, that takes a lot of imagination and intellectual kind of manipulation amongst that kind of person to do that this goes back to doctrines and i talked about the doctrine of compassion in the beginning just because you have a certain doctrine that you live your life by doesn't mean or you claim you live your life by that doesn't mean that you necessarily do it all the time the other thing is that when when um there's a certain amount of um prejudgment involved in saying to a person you know i don't think of you as disabled or people have said to me you know you don't act like a black person i would i could never tell that you you were born in jamaica because you don't behave like a jamaican and i look at them and i say what does what 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 does a jamaican behave like you know what does um what is a disabled person supposed to um how would you recognize a disabled person if you don't recognize me as disabled you know so there's a certain amount of um stereotyping involved in that already in that statement you know um that they have certain ideas in their heads of what a disabled person should act like maybe pitiful maybe um or self-pitying maybe angry maybe um uh, resentful of the rest of society for being able-bodied and because you're a cheerful happy person and you're self-sufficient well, I'm they not, don't, but, you know. well, <laughs> well it, it, maybe you are in more ways than you recognize and maybe people fail to recognize you as disabled because you don't live up to the perceptions that they already have so to me that is a very prejudicial statement. And to me, it's very easy for people to make those remarks because they don't realize that they're being prejudiced. Absolutely. They don't realize that they have preconceptions. So, absolutely. So my point is, is it's very hard work to sort of say, well, I have all these prejudices. And despite the evidence in front of me, you, I'm going to make an exception that you're not really part of that prejudice. But that's hard work. Uh, that takes a lot of, mm. of kind of intellectual imagination mm. to negate to negate the evidence neg- in yeah. front of them. Uh, there's an example, and still hold on to say, "Well, I'm still going to think that about it." Yeah, but yeah. you know, you're gonna you're gonna be different. You yeah, know. Allport called it prejudice without compunction. And he gave an example of Armenians who, um, they were one of the the dominant immigrant groups when America was becoming a society at first. And there was this perception, you know, that they were um, mean and thieves and didn't pay their debts and so on and so forth. And when they did a survey, they um, found that... um, it was the total opposite. And so he asked the question, he said, um, how does it, how does this become the dominant notion, the dominant stereotype in face of all the evidence to the contrary? But I don't know if it's probably a small group of people deciding that they 
want to stigmatize a certain group and then creating these false notions that they project on the rest of society. Which is hard work. It's hard work, but <laughs> it's hard work for that very small group. But once the rest of society accepts that this is the way things are or the way things should be which is a very easy thing to do you know you are raised to think a certain way and you just think that way and even when um you know there is evidence to the contrary bombarding you it's just hard not to to go along with your fundamental beliefs because that's what you've believed ever since you were you know well, i think we're gonna have to beg to because well, I, I actually think it's, it's yeah i think it's easy yeah for us to be who we are, yeah, you know, tolerant liberals, yeah, given our education, our, our relative affluence, our, all of those things, it, it, there's no effort involved in, no. in in tolerance, and I actually think uh, it, intolerance is much harder, much much harder well, to maintain mm. in the face of everything around us and uh, according to what the things that you just mentioned you mm. mentioned education and affluence and did you say liberalism um i think in terms of those things that you mentioned um it, it's hard work to acquire those things I mean, if you come from where I was born, acquiring a decent education is not the easiest thing. I agree, but you, you, know. you did equally you, uh, a doctrine of compassion. You know, not, not a lot of people uh, had that. And, and I think combined with you yeah. know, a doctrine of, of, of compassion, yeah. uh, tolerant parents, mm-hmm. you know, it, 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 and just coming back to the all poor thing, it's not a criticism mm-hmm. that, it's, that it's easy for us. I could yeah. say, you know... And I think that's that's it, it's easier for us. <laughs> it's not easy for us. It's easier for us because we've been educated then. And I think part or of the exposed. problem in, in making change to the intolerant and the ignorant yeah. is because often I think uh, us liberals mm. have no idea how hard it is to be an ignorant bigot. Yeah. Yeah. who discriminates. It's actually incredibly hard work. And until we can fully grasp mm. the effort they mm. put into it, <laughs> we're not going to change it. Um, and it's just I another way of looking at it. It's, it's, it's int- I, I don't know. I, you know. I, I think maybe... It's both. That's I, the reality. I, yeah, both. it is. It is. And I think maybe what we need to... Um, the issue, the issue that we need to we get need to, to the get bottom of. We need to get out more. Of. That's what we need to do. We need to get out more. Yeah. <laughs> we need to get to the bottom of the issue of why is it that they're willing to expend that effort? Absolutely. You know, because you're saying that this 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 requires incredibly, you know, a, a monumental effort. Well, why is it that people want to make that effort anyway mm. to become a racist mm. or any mm. kind of bigot? Absolutely. You know, so, Yeah. And I there think we, we don't often, and I think we it, don't know. We need to look at that a bit more. Just think, you know, why do they put that kind of effort into it? Because it is, it's hard work. Well, maybe it's because they need to belong. Maybe it's it's this notion that um, they they have to uh, believe in something. You know, whether that. Um, belief is, is, is something that the rest of society condones well, or not. It's a nice it idea, actually, because you could argue with the kind of contemporary Western death of God. Yeah. 
it does need something to believe in. Yeah. And it and it, it hooks into a belief and then puts as much effort into that. Exactly. As it would have, you know, a hundred years ago into God. Yeah. And and that's an interesting idea. I think we're probably talking rubbish, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm sure you'll have somebody else come on the show and refute everything that I've said. <laughs> I doubt it. I doubt um... it. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed the the uh, the the chapter I've read. Thank you. Obviously, I probably won't read the book, <laughs> but that's only because I've never read Harry Potter. So I just, yeah, you know, it's it's, uh, and I'm, I'm I'm probably not going to read Harry Potter. To be honest, <laughs> I'm not going to read it. But I know that many millions have, and I would recommend your book to them. Thank you. And it's very I'd, kind of I'd you. like to thank you, Karen Brown, for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It was fun. <laughs> Cheers. Absolutely. Thank you.